Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a fun and dynamic and enlightening conversation with Tegan Keel, the leader of KPMG's climate data and technology practice, and Sonu Panda, CEO of Prescriptive Data, the makers of the building operating system software called Nantum OS. We talked about many things, including how the SEC's new carbon disclosure regulations will change the game for real estate, how new technology can improve upon the mess that is carbon accounting and reporting today, the potential role of blockchain technology in decarbonization efforts, how Nantum OS helps building, oper- building owners and operators with decarbonization, and much, much more. So without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Sonu Panda and Tegan Keel. Tegan and Sonu, welcome to the show. I'm excited about this conversation. Tegan, I'll start with you. Can you introduce yourself, please? Of course. Thanks for having me, James. I'm happy to be here today. Um, so Tegan Keel, I run the climate data and technology practice at KPMG, which was part of KPMG Impact, which is our sort of overall ESG services group. Me and my team focus specifically on helping our clients get what I call operational climate data. So data coming from either enterprise or physical systems like buildings, all the way to the point of reporting. So whether that's internal reporting to do things like understanding over underperformance or you know, climate disclosure type uh, reporting and sort of managing that whole process from data to calculation methodology to technology to finally to output. Got it. And can we can we go do a little uh, background on you? Like before this role that you were in, can you, you tell us a little bit about your educational and professional background leading up to that? I can. So I won't do sort of the full history, but I did my undergrad in DC. I studied political science, among many other things. And then, you know, as one would expect, I mostly spent my career in emerging technologies and data and analytics. Um, So sort of backed into that one accidentally, but sort of have always been interested in emerging technologies and sort of how they influence different businesses as a whole and sort of found my sweet spot here at KPMG. I came in as part of our data and analytics practice that eventually evolved into running what was our blockchain center of excellence. And as part of that, we pretty quickly decided that climate was sort of a good place to focus from an emerging technology and blockchain point of view. I think we've evolved a little bit into focusing more on the data than the technology side of that, although technology is still really big. That's how we were introduced to Sonu and the lovely other folks at Prescriptive Data. Um, But since then, we've sort of shedded the blockchain part of that and focused entirely on climate data and technology as part of our overall ESG offerings at KPMG. Cool. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to start to pick your brain on some of these technologies, but also just the, the state of your client's uh, <laughs> road to decarbonization. So who are your, what types of clients do you have? Obviously, you can't talk about some of, the, of them, but what types of organizations well, are they? Any, but they run a pretty wide gamut. So obviously, you know, both given sort of KPMG as a company, you know, our clients fit a fairly, you know, generally large enterprise profile. And then if we get specifically into sort of who's spending the most time thinking about climate and emissions, it tends to be financial services organizations. Obviously, they've got both a large physical footprint, but they're also financers of everything else. So they're on the hook for everyone else's emissions to a certain degree. And then oil and gas companies, we spend a lot of time there for very obvious reasons. But really, we spend time in pretty much every industry across the board. So you know, retail, industrial manufacturing, all of the above. Cool. And before we go to Sonu, can you tell us about this plant over your left shoulder? Because <laughs> it's amazing. So the plant is probably more popular than I am, and I'm totally okay with that. It 
doesn't. Some people have a nickname for it. My boss is named it Seymour after uh, Little Shop of Horrors. But I take no credit for it. I am definitely not the green thumb in the family. That's all my husband. But but someday, like, I may just not appear on camera and then they'll just be the plant and that'll be the end of things. Well, I'm sorry if people are just listening on audio. You can check out the YouTube version to view this amazing plant. Sonu, can we go to you? Uh, yeah. Can you introduce yourself, please? Of course. Hi, James. Uh, hi, Tegan. Sonu Panda, um, I will first address the most important question that people are wondering, which is, is my last name actually Panda like the bear? And the answer is, it, it is. I've been in therapy ever since the fourth grade. Um, I'm making the best of it. I'm the CEO of a company called Prescriptive Data. I should have said a fantastic and awesome company called Prescriptive Data based here in New York City. We are a smart building technology company um, that was very much envisioned through the uh, paradigm of operating systems that, that many of you are familiar with. This notion of you know, Windows as an operating system or Mac OS or Linux, if you prefer, which I'll get into in a little bit more detail. But these days, we spend almost all of our time talking about very specific outcomes. And the one that is the hottest topic of the lot is climate change, and in particular, science-based AI and ML-driven decarbonization in buildings. Cool. Let's go a little bit of a rewind on, on you. Can you talk about what you did before prescriptive data, your, your educational and professional background? Yeah, happy to do that. And so first things first, I, I couldn't tell my story without pointing out that my father thinks of himself as a real life Indiana Jones. <laughs> and so as a result, we have, I was born in India, moved to the States when I was little, left and moved to Athens, Greece, then Indonesia, then Malaysia, then Indonesia again. And as a result of our time in Greece, we're the only Indians that always have feta cheese in the fridge. <laughs> so that's chapter one. Chapter two is I uh, went to the University of Pennsylvania, um, engineering grad, mainly because if you're Indian and you tell your parents you're not going to go to medical school, you got to at least get an engineering degree. And then have spent almost all my time in the enterprise uh, software space was at a world-class darling of dot-com 1.0 called Trilogy Software in Austin, Texas in the late 90s. And then was at a company called Calidus Software that we took public and and sold for $2.6 billion to SAP. And then I was one of the early, you know, my co-founder and I started one of the early subscription e-commerce companies that was at the end of the day, supply chain software, but had a very unique sort of front end to it. So you may hear on the internet that some people will refer to me as an online florist. And I'm referring <laughs> to a company called H Bloom. Okay. <clears throat> and I've been in prescriptive data now uh, for about five years. We're off to the races. Awesome. And, and can you tell me a little bit more? I don't know the founding story of prescriptive data other than it's connected to Rudin. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you that don't know, Rudin Management Company is the operating company that belongs to the Rudin family. And the operating company looks after and manages on a day-to-day basis the single largest privately held real estate portfolio in New York City. It's 10 million square feet of very high-end commercial property and then 5 million square feet of high-end residential property. And to give you a flavor for sort of the caliber of, of, of that organization and of its tenants, they're the landlords of Blackstone, KPMG, the NFL. They built the Thomson Reuters building. Um, they actually still own 32 Avenue of Americas, which is where the first handshake took place between AT&T and MCI many, many years ago. And they're essentially a blue chip real estate owner and operator here in, in New York City. We were founded, not in a garage, but in the engine room of 345 Park Avenue, which is a very tall, I forget the exact number of stories, probably close to 50 story building, 1.8 million square feet at the intersection of 52nd Street and Park Avenue. And we make a big deal about that because we, we, we certainly envisioned all of our technology and our story as being one that was defined by building operators, specifically for building operators, admittedly with an initial bent towards commercial office buildings, but with a long-term vision around creating general purpose artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms that can be applied to all kinds of other asset classes as well. Got it. And, and you have something special over your left shoulder as well. So there's a, there's an elephant there. Is there a story that, that an elephant has? The elephant? Oh no, you're talking about, you're talking about Billy the Brontosaurus. Oh, it's a Brontosaurus. Sorry. Could only see the back of it. Yeah. Billy right here. 
<laughs> well, it's funny when people always talk about, you know, is anyone going to return to the workplace? Let's be clear. The workplace is where I keep all of my son and my daughter's paper mache <laughs> projects. So I go. have to come back. You have to go back. Yeah. yeah your your friends. That's awesome. <laughs> that is a very special paper mache. Cool. So let's jump into carbon accounting and reporting. So Tegan, can you kind of set the stage? Why is this important to your clients right now? And that might seem like a dumb question, but I would just like to start at the top. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's especially important and sort of everyone's favorite thing to talk about right now, because I think it was exactly a month ago on March 21st, the SEC released their proposed guidance for climate reporting. Um, So essentially what that means is the SEC has now sort of put their stake in the ground in terms of what they're expecting companies to state publicly. And sort of the the semi-joke, but it's mostly true that I like to say, like the current state of climate reporting is a little bit of like choose your own adventure, but also grade your own paper. So you can pretty much pick and choose whatever you want to report on, whatever makes you look good or whatever you have the data to report on. And then nobody, with the exception of a few kind of specialized watchdog groups or, you know, some of our clients are subject to, you know, federal regulatory um, oversight from like the EPA or something, you know, nobody's really checking any of that. And so the proposed guidance from the SEC really sort of put all of that to rest and said, hey, you guys really need to get, you know, your your house in order. They laid out some pretty broad guidelines in terms of what they're expecting our clients to report on, which is scope one and scope two emissions, which is, you know, sort of the the emissions that you as an organization are responsible for producing. They laid out some guidelines for scope three emissions, which is basically everything that's sort of outside of your direct sort of operational control that includes things like supply chain, like finance emissions, if you're a bank, all those kinds of things, you know, that may or may not be required depending on how you fall from the SEC categorization. They talked about climate risk, which is basically saying disclosing how much of your business is at risk due to climate factors. And then they also talked about making sure you're reporting on progress toward public public commitments. So if you've made a commitment to net zero by 2050 or reducing emissions by a certain amount, uh, they're basically saying you also have to disclose what those commitments are and how you're tracking to them and also how you're how you're measuring that progress. And then again, depending on sort of how you are categorized within the SEC filing guidelines, uh, they also laid out some expectations for third-party audit on top of all of that. Okay. I have a million tra- questions and directions we could go with that. Can you just kind of summarize what that now means for building owners then? That now yes. that they have to do all that, what's the What's the, what are the repercussions? Yes. So for building owners in real estate in particular, it it depends kind of what the source is, but there's multiple sources that basically say real estate's responsible for about 40% of greenhouse gas emissions overall. So it's sort of the best place to start for anyone who's looking to make a significant emissions reduction. And I think what that means, and obviously, you know, Sony will probably talk more about this is you have to have a really good idea of what's happening within your buildings across a lot of dimensions to be able to understand sort of where you stand today and what that means in terms of reducing your carbon footprint to get to the targets that you've stated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really, what, what strikes me is the, the fact that I'm disclosing not only my target, but also the progress I'm making. And then over time, that has to be clear whether you're going to make it or not. At this point, right? Okay. Exactly. The other thing I would mention is that's also super important, obviously, not just from a regulatory perspective, but from an investor perspective, right? So, part of the intent of what the SEC has outlined, I think, is to sort of create a more comparable baseline to compare different companies against. And so that obviously also helps investors who, you know, are also trying to make sure they're making. ESG or climate friendly decisions on where to place their money, 
that gives them a better baseline to invest in a certain company or a certain type of property over mm-hmm. another. And do I have it right that the disclosing climate risks piece for real estate, there's also this risk of obsolescence. Like if, if they don't decarbonize at a certain rate, tenants, people that use real estate might start to believe that building or that organization isn't on track and therefore that building's not relevant. Is that the type of risk that you're talking about? Yeah, so that's not part of the disclosure requirements, but that is definitely a risk. I would sort of okay. qualify that in a more broader category around reputational risk, but you're spot okay. on. It's, you know, there's going to be an expectation that you sort of do a bare minimum. Otherwise, investors or end customers or tenants or whoever it is are going to look at you as a little bit of damaged goods. Yep, yep. And, and Sonu, before the SEC regulations, you guys were already on this track anyway, right? So what are the other things that are sort of driving your clients down this road of carbon accounting and reporting? Yeah, that, what you just said is absolutely right. But I think the motivations, I, I think the intent was always the same, but I think the motivations have become much more mm-hmm. pronounced. And so what okay. I mean by that is, and, and maybe I'll come back to this in a second, I think it's probably helpful to, for everyone to have some context around what do we mean when we talk about an operating system for buildings. But pre-SEC disclosure hoopla, we spent a lot of time essentially helping real estate owners and operators, as well as tenants of considerable size within those buildings, use artificial intelligence and machine learning to reduce energy demand, first and foremost, which then, of course, is correlated to energy cost reduction. And they were doing that not only because that's a way to save money. And and depending upon what kind of stakeholder you are, if you're a tenant, that's just outright good for your business. But if you're an owner and operator of real estate, sustained savings means sustained profit increase and sustained profit increase means asset appreciation. So there's lots of good reasons to do it. I think now as a function of the carbon compliance regimes that have now come to the forefront, you know, local law 97 in New York, Birdo in Boston, you know, a whole series of, I'm not sure if they're properly named in, in, in one shape or fashion, but sort of general building energy performance standards in DC. St. Louis also has a program that I can't remember the name of, but with the advent of these types of regimes, it's become, you know, the, the benefits of focusing on energy demand management have now been amplified. So on the one hand, for those that are relatively carbon efficient and have programs that can realize greater and greater efficiency, over time, they will be rewarded both monetarily, but also as it relates to all the things that Tegan was talking about, reputationally, employees want to work at sort of thoughtful employers, customers want to buy from you know, sustainability oriented purveyors, and the list goes on and on. And then it will become much, much more expensive for those organizations that simply don't have a program or a plan to meet the standards that are prescribed by those, by those uh, compliance regimes. Got it. Yeah, something Tegan, you, something you said there on grading your own paper was it really makes a lot of sense to me because I've been reading, you know, ESG reports for big landlords for a couple of years now, and one of the things that popped out to me in these latest rounds, you know, end of twenty twenty one, end end of twenty twenty one, is there there are things like, hey, we've saved. 18% of our electric users or something like that. And it's like, okay, how are you doing that? Like, what's the target you've set? Like how, what progress are you on? And it's, it just seems like they're, they're kind of, you know, like you said, reporting what they want to report. And so it, I guess what I'm getting out of that is it seems like that is going to, everyone's going to have the own, their own way to grade their paper <laughs> that's exactly. coming from the government at this point. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I mentioned sort of the investor angle, but it also makes it really hard for each of those individual companies to even know where they stand against their peers, too. So they may be thinking they're doing great, but if somebody down the street has, you know, 40% reduction, but, you know, they've maybe categorized it or framed it a different way, Mm -hmm. then, you know, that may or may not be obvious. Um, But I think to your point, you know, some of the stuff that is missing right now, which I think is maybe what you were getting at is there's context around that. Like, is it 18% less because it was in a lockdown and like (laughs) nobody was in the building and you could just shut a bunch of stuff off. And so maybe that's an anomaly versus like a sustained pattern. Don't know. Right. Okay. And obviously there's challenges too that COVID brought around quantifying energy savings, things like that. We, we know that, but yeah, it's, so it's, it's, 
not everyone's working from the same same sheet of paper. So I'd love to understand more about what your process is with your clients. So you're collecting all this data, some of it's from buildings. Can you talk more about that? It's It strikes me as sort of a mess at this point, collecting all this data and then getting it into a, a place where it can be reported on in a meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's not without its challenges, for sure. I think part of it is, you know, not the variety of data across buildings is large, right? If you don't have a system in place to sort of give the same measurements at the same level, you may have more or less granularity across the board, which means you're going to have to make assumptions uh, on how certain things are doing based on others. You know, so your degree of accuracy and reliability goes down a little bit. And then there's a whole sort of the second part of it is knowing what to do with the data once you have it, which is, you know, there's all kinds of complex things around methodologies and the right way to calculate something and how much of it to attribute. You know, again, if you have a building with multiple tenants, how do you know how much of that to attribute to a certain tenant or another? You have to have pretty you know, sophisticated submetering in place, sort of area by area. So there can be a lot, a wide variety of granularity in terms of what we have. I would say by and large, you know, and I'm I'm personally curious to see how this changes, but I think a lot of our clients are still sort of relying on utility bill statements to calculate their emissions, which yeah. is basically something that says you consumed X amount of electricity that translates into Y amount of emissions. I think, you know, we'll probably <laughs> see a move away from that again, sort of given where things are moving as a whole with climate reporting, but also what the SEC said. Um, and then obviously there's a lot of you know technology advancements where it now is a lot more feasible than it was maybe even three to five years ago to get that better level of granularity to sort of understand exactly what's, what's producing how much from an emissions yeah. or carbon footprint. And just to clarify what you mean by that. So typically utility bills, whole building, not necessarily always metered by tenant, but it's also monthly, right? Uh, is that what you mean? Is like we're getting going to get more granular from a building space perspective and a time perspective? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in an ideal world, and I think, you know, Nantum provides some of this for their clients and someone can talk more about that. But in an ideal world, as a building owner or a company that's a tenant of a building, which is pretty much everybody, I would know basically in near real time how much energy I'm consuming and what that's derived from. Again, going back to like my broader carbon footprint reduction goals so that I know, you know, is it our HVAC system that's kind of causing the energy suck? Is yeah. it we have bad windows, any number of things. And then I can sort of intervene and fix that. Got it. Okay. So can we talk a little bit, I, I want to get into software in a minute, but I, I want to uh, stay on the process of decarbonization for one more question, which is, can we talk a little bit more about the role of efficiency versus offsets versus procuring rene renewables directly and talk about how your different clients are approaching that question? Because obviously you could just offset all your usage and now you're good, right? That's what some people kind of think. So can you talk about what that process looks like and the decision-making behind it? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing explicitly that says you can't do that. But again, it's kind of in that realm of reputational. Um, yeah. I mean, right now, when I hear that, when I hear that, I'm like, okay, so you're not serious then. Like that. that's kind of maybe the general public starts to have that perspective. Yeah. And I mean, we could have a whole separate conversation on the validity and like verifiability of offsets, which is a whole separate issue, right? Mm -hmm. and which I think is part of why that's becoming sort of less less acceptable as a strategy. But I think, you know, what I what I usually tell our clients is, you know, start with what you can control. You can control your energy consumption. You can, to a certain degree, you can control sort of your physical footprint. Mm -hmm. So start with the, you know, those are the reductions that are gonna be most impactful from a long-term perspective. You know, you're not gonna get there as fast because it's gonna take some time for things to sort of stack and start seeing the results. 
then you want to sort of layer in your renewable strategy, which is, you know, can you compensate for some of that by having a better strategy around renewables that could be on-site or off-site? So, you know, think about things like energy generated from a wind farm that's offshore that you're purchasing versus having solar panels on the roof where you can sort of directly consume that and then, mm -hmm. you know, bypass the traditional grid altogether. And then really offsets should start, sort of pretty much be your last resort to just sort of compensate for anything else as you're working on sort of getting your renewables and energy consumption in line to the point where you no longer need offsets. Mm -hmm. Okay. Ideally. Ideally. Yeah. So it's kind of like a hierarchy of emissions or hierarchy of energy yeah. sources type of approach. Let's talk about technology a little bit. Can you talk about the breadth Tegan, of all the different types of technologies that are now being used for this, this journey? Yeah, I mean, it's this is super interesting to me, and I think Sony touched on some of it, but, you know, you have a lot of technologies that are coming into the space that are specifically sort of labeling themselves climate technologies. Mm -hmm. And then you have a much broader set of technologies that have been around for a while that maybe didn't start as climate technologies per se, but now have huge roles to play or yep. could have huge roles to play in decarbonizing things like Nantum and other sort of smart buildings systems um, that play there. But so I think, you know, we are seeing, you know, we work with the full gamut. So we've got, you know, smaller companies that are a little more focused, like Nanda. There's a company that KPMG recently announced that we have a minority equity investment called Context Labs, which does, you know, something very similar to trying to understand from an asset level more granular emissions measurement for oil and gas plants. So oh, okay. using sensor data, using satellites, using drones, all kinds of things just to get a better handle on those emissions. Um, but then we're seeing, you know, there's a ton of companies that are playing in the reporting space. So more around how do you do the calculations and output? How do you get ready for something like an SEC level disclosure? You know, but basically the expectation is that starts to get looked at like a 10K. And so the, it's, it's just huge. I mean, the, you know, there's, you go as broad and as niche as, you know, companies focused on managing water consumption off of water cooling towers yeah. to as broad as, you know, full emissions reporting. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And, and, and that was a great summary for a very difficult question that I asked you because there are so many different types of technologies. Can we talk specifically about blockchain? So you mentioned blockchain earlier in terms of kind of an intersection between blockchain and, and carbon decarbonization technology, climate tech. I I've, I have trouble with blockchain because this past Christmas break, I spent my entire break, like I took two weeks off of work and I like went deep into everything to do with crypto. And then I came out of it like two weeks later and I was like, I, I still don't understand what's happening in the world right now. And I'm an engineer, like I have to understand how everything works. And I got down to that point where I was like, okay, I think I get it, but I still don't get it. It was like the closer I got to it, the less I actually understood. That's how I felt at least. And so I feel just a general skepticism towards how blockchain could be inserted into the decarbonization process and provide real value. So I'll start you there, but can you talk about what, what role it might have? That's a loaded setup. So thanks totally for that. loaded setup. Um, <laughs> By the way, for the, record, for the record, I thought what James is going to say is I spent two weeks just thinking about crypto and now I'm rich. Yeah, right? Nope, didn't but say that. <laughs> Nope. So, I mean, I'll, I'll summarize by saying, like, let's separate the concept of crypto and blockchain. Cryptocurrency is a, a use case, which I don't really love that term, but a use case of how blockchain can be used and leave it at that. But I think, you know, the most simple way I've found, and maybe this is just because, you know, KPMG at its core is an accounting firm. And so this is a language most people here understand is everyone sort of understands the concept of a ledger, right? You're recording what, who did what, when, where it went, et cetera, et cetera. So easiest way I've ever found to describe blockchain is a distributed ledger. So take that concept and just sort of have multiple parties have some or all of a copy of that ledger that they can verify against each other mm -hmm. and digitize it. 
right? But it's not really centralized anywhere. That's the point. So if I apply that to the concept of something like emissions or energy, it can be very useful and it's not the only way, but it is an application. You want something like that because you have multiple parties that are sort of part of this energy transaction that you want to record sort of the history of that emission, basically. Mm. And then eventually, if you need to report on it or disclose it, you know, you have sort of, again, a verified history of that emission. I mentioned earlier, trying not to go down the rabbit hole of offsets, but you get sort of the same concept around carbon offsets and renewable energy credits, where part of the challenge in that space right now is, I don't know, you know, if I'm a company, I'm buying it, I may or may not know exactly where it was generated from, how it got bundled with other things. Blockchain, again, can, can't, it does, not the only technology that could do this, but can play a role in sort of helping give that visibility again, so that when I'm as a company, I'm reporting that to the SEC, I have a history of this renewable energy credit was generated, say in Indonesia, it was bundled with these other ones from India and China. And then I finally consumed it in the state of California. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I've heard companies that are doing this, We've had a couple come and present to our community before. I haven't heard of one that's a public, like open blockchain. It was almost like we're using blockchain technology, but it's our blockchain, right? That we're using to track it. Is Are there any public projects in this area? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. There are I mean, some forthcoming though, James. Okay. Um, and they're predictably top secrets and, and things that I probably shouldn't share too many details around, but this idea of creating an open blockchain as a mechanism that is a dramatic improvement on the offset market, whereby you know, a token can mm. represent relative carbon efficiency amongst you know, market participants is stuff that is on the horizon. Got it. Okay. Can we just, can we just break that down just real quick? So why would a token need to be created in this case and then traded? And how would that improve upon the current situation of offsets? Well, it comes. It goes back to um, to riff a little bit more on what Tegan was saying in response to your, your question about the, the, the role that blockchain plays. I think there's a really important theme here that we didn't yet talk about. And that's this idea that from the point of view of energy efficiency or energy savings opportunities and how that translates into carbon suppression, you know, decarbonization, I think mm -hmm. the notion of perishability is really important. So this is a concept that, you know, you hear about in the news when you hear about how, how airlines are doing this idea that if a plane takes off with an empty seat, that inventory is perishable, like you never can refill it, right? It's taken off and it's empty and you'll never recover that. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same way about energy optimization op opportunities, which is to say, you know, going back to the, you know, using utility bills to figure out what your carbon footprint is sort of depressing, right? You see this thing that's a month old. It tells you that you wasted a bunch of energy 30 days ago, but yeah. it doesn't tell you what you can do right now to save energy. And so this notion of perishability and documenting all of the circumstantial factors that characterize that perishable moment is a terrific use case for blockchain. And, and mainly because of the ability to you know, capture very granular, near real-time snapshots of the context, which is you know, important from the point of view of then being able to take immediate action to, to remediate or to address the situation at hand. But certainly from the point of view of an AI and ML driven company creates a much, much richer data set around which to create knowledge that then can be replicated. And it's, it's knowledge from the point of view of identifying what's a negative pattern so that you can dampen it or you can attenuate it altogether. It's identifying a, pattern, a positive pattern so that you can repeat it, but ideally amplify it. And then just very simply illuminating the circumstances around that perishable opportunity and whether you, you, you took it and saved or whether you, mm, you squandered okay. it and didn't have you know, the benefit that you otherwise would have had. Okay. Yeah, that reminds me of all the buildings. Go ahead, Tegan. Sorry. 
I was just going to say, so the other way to look at it is again, and you know, a lot of our, our clients like to think about how do I get benefit out of some of these decarbonization or broader climate things? Cause it starts very quickly to look like a compliance or cost sort of exercise. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the concept where also tokenization comes in is the potential monetization. So we go back to the idea of getting a really good idea of what's happening in a building. If I know with a fairly high degree of confidence that at any given time, I'm below whatever regulatory threshold, if there is one, like in New York has a building emissions cap um, from an emissions standpoint, and I'm below the level I need to be for my own internal reduction targets, anything I reduce above and beyond that could be monetized as a credit in the form of a token that can then be exchanged because someone else is not going to be able to reduce at that level. Mm-hmm. They'll need that credit. Um, and so there's also sort of a little big con- big idea around monetizing that and using technology that way. Got it. And that'd be better than the current state where it's kind of just like everyone's saying, here's my credit that I verified on my own that I you know exactly. created for you. Okay. Do you want to buy it? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's that thing that you just said, the on your own, that I think is also another interesting, you know, notion, which is that you you can't simply make a claim and expect that counterparties in the marketplace are going to accept your claim without, you know, the backup. Yeah. And so, you know, to give credit where credit is due, KPMG and similar organizations are experts at this idea of proving provenance. Mm-hmm. And showing the trail and having the evidence to prove the value of the underlying outcome of that business process. And so I okay. think applying that to carbon efficiency is you know, the name of the game. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. Well, you kind of led me to where I was going next, which is I you know, do measurement verification for a living or have done measurement verification for a living. It's not a perfect science. It's difficult, right, to, to do. Someone in today's world, some human that has, you know, a CMVP stamp of approval from, you know, a third party organization has to say, yes, these calculations have been done correctly, right? And in the energy engineering sense, I know that decarbonization probably has another organization as well, but it's, it's, I guess the question is, how do, how does a blockchain improve or help that process, that verification process happen? And is it automated? How does that work? Yeah, yes, it is automated. Um, I think it can be automated to even a greater extent. But one way that it potentially helps is, you know, is the breadth, if you will, of the contextual data that applies to every one of those optimization opportunities. So, for example, knowing exactly what set of standards were used to arrive at the MNV conclusion mm-hmm. is, again, contextual data. Knowing that it was done by you know, a world-class organization like DVGNL you know, or Black and Veatch is important. Knowing that it came out of a revenue grade, the data came out of a revenue grade meter you know, made by a reputed manufacturer um, matters. And it's this idea that the more depth and breadth of that contextual information that can be mm-hmm. captured, the more likely it is that the proposed factor that you're looking at or the proposed data is indeed true. And that should be relied upon for all kinds of other downstream outcomes. Makes perfect sense. It's like it's like standardizing an MNV report, and yeah. the data that would go into that, and then putting that in a public place. I see. Yeah, exactly okay. right. So, so on the part of the automation um, piece of the equation, you know, quick quick digression to explain my point, right? So, so for those of you that know, Nantum is the operating system that 
is our product. Prescriptive data is the company. We're data-centric in the sense that it's a platform that runs on top of existing operational technology and then incorporates data from third-party sources like IoT sensors or, or utility information or weather data, what have you. And so the idea here is within that environment, we're essentially doing th- four things. One, simply surfacing data that people may not have seen before in their own building that belonged to them that they were never taking advantage of. So this idea that you can't manage unless you can measure. Two and three are about what we talked about earlier, which is this idea of understand what's business as usual and what's a departure from business as usual through the data. So that when you find negative patterns, you can take evasive action. And when you find positive patterns, you can reinforce them. Mm-hmm. But then lastly, in those environments where the building operators have a sense of comfort with the recommendations we provide and where the operational technology allows it, we can take complete autonomous control of the building, which this context for if you come back to the MNV topic that you just brought up is this idea that as a IoT platform, first and foremost, we are constant and, and, and as a data centric IoT platform, we're constantly monitoring all of the data that would produce a positive MNV outcome or a negative you know, MNV outcome mm-hmm. all in real time with the view towards providing IPMVP standardized or ASHRAE you know, standard-based assessments mm. of the recommendations and the outcome or the results that come after that. And so where we're headed is this idea that while we might be best of breed in a handful of algos, we would hope to partner with other folks that are best of breed uh, in the algo business by using Nantum as a platform that does real-time M&V of energy conservation measures, as well as other types of AI and ML applications, leak detection, you know, slip and fall threat detection, security applications, you know, water treatment plant, pH, you know, monitoring to prevent legionnaires, and the list goes on and on. Traditional smart building sort of operational efficiency uh, type things, but all with the lens towards, again, measure with high fidelity and verify with veracity exactly what happened. Fascinating. I, I want to go back to the building OS thing real quick or in just a second what when you guys are making me think of is like all of the buildings out there that have opportunities for energy savings or have implemented them and it's kind of just a data mess right now right there's opportunities that have been identified but haven't been implemented they need to be funded in some way they need to be approved in some way a lot of times the funding is hard to come by even though the payback might be really great so yeah. the ability, what I'm, what I'm hearing is like the ability to create a token out of that if, if, and then sell that token could help just get stuff done better if we're, if we're For sure. imagining. Okay. Yeah, it creates a, uh, you know, relative carbon efficiency creates a currency of sorts, not to get, you know, too tokeny, but a currency of sort that, that can be traded to then become a funding source for those folks that are you know, particularly carbon efficient. And it's a bit of a virtuous circle, which is that you know, by creating that engine, if you will, you get efficiencies, those efficiencies create more funds, which then makes you even more efficient, right. um, which is essentially the name of the game if we're going to turn back the clock on climate change as quickly as we think we all need to and, and certainly want to. And so, okay, so the, the, the way to then create the business case for doing energy efficiency type of things in the future yep. could be, if I'm hearing it correctly, could be uh, cost savings, which is what everyone uses now, obviously. It could be the ability to sell a token. It could be the lack of needing to buy an offset for that piece of carbon. What else is there? Is there, is there more layers than that then? Yeah. Avoided well, fines, I guess, is another Well, one. I was just going to say, if you'll let me reorder that, the way I think about it is, Energy demand management equals energy cost reduction. Energy mm-hmm. cost reduction equals carbon footprint shrinkage, which equals carbon compliance regime fine avoidance. And now all of a sudden you have a bunch of hard dollar black and white ROI that can be recouped on a relatively quick payback schedule mm-hmm. that can then be used for reinvestment into other decarbonization initiatives or just as importantly, can be the economic engine that pays for all the other whiz bang smart building outcomes that real estate owners and operators and enterprises are looking to implement. In other words, like for example, a you know, tenant app. Tenant apps are the rage right now. Really hard to justify the actual value associated with them. But if all of a sudden now what we say is 
take this ESG related data and these real time savings opportunities or carbon reduction opportunities and deliver recommendations based on that logic through that app to the individual tenant. Now, all of a sudden you have a base building who's responsible for 100% of the fine, distributing the potential to avoid the fine amongst the other 60% of the energy consumption stack in that building by empowering the individual employees of the tenant with data that, again, gets them into this virtual cycle of saving, being more efficient, getting some benefit from that, and reinvesting that effort and goodwill into the next initiative. And I would even take that a step further. There's, if I sort of take, add one thing to Sony's list, then you also get lower cost of capital access, potentially, Mm. right? So again, going back to the investor angle, the better you perform on climate, that's now sort of going to become combined with your overall financial performance, which helps feed your cost of capital. I see. And then we haven't even gotten, well, we haven't even gotten to your last point, monetize. But to add to Tegan's point about, you know, more efficient cost of capital, we're also seeing, you know, PNC insurers say, we'll reduce your policy premiums because you've got this omniscient brain monitoring every single data stream in the business, taking evasive action before problems become disasters. And then, and, and again, like I said, we haven't even gotten to monetization yet. Fascinating. Okay, let's go from big and broad down to buildings. So this audience is used to hearing about a lot of technologies like Nantum. So if we could go back to that building OS yeah. definition you gave there, Sonu, like, can you just describe, sure. you, you, you gave us a full definition, but like, what is a building OS? If yeah. You start there. So we, in, you know, we think of the OS dimension in the same way anyone who uses a computer thinks about an operating system, which is to say, whether you're a Windows fan or a Mac OS fan or Linux or what have you, there's some interesting things that are happening under the keyboard. And then there's something interesting happening above the keyboard, which is to say the operating system of choice, whichever one you happen to prefer, whatever platform you prefer, is doing all kinds of things autonomously that help you do your job better. Meaning if you put your fingers on the keyboard, the operating system is managing the hard drive and managing the USB connectors and the list goes on and on. Yeah. Just so that you can do product, you know, well, maybe I don't know that, you know, Instagram is, you know, falls in the category of productivity, but that you can do things above the keyboard that are oriented towards your job, your desired outcome, and that is supportive of your workflow. So in other words, above the keyboard, you might use the exact same hardware to you know, uh, edit this podcast, and I might spend all my time in Excel. The same concept then applies to buildings, which is to say, prescript- which is to say Nantum um, is first and foremost middleware. We ingest data from existing operational technology, regardless who the manufacturer is, regardless of the protocol upon which it communicates, regardless of the vintage in many cases, and almost always across lots of different vendors such that we can create a unified, very deep and detailed, but also secure and actionable data set that enables us to then create applications that are use case specific, so commercial office oriented versus warehouse oriented, and that are designed around the workflow of building operators. So to give you a flavor, those apps are everything from proprietary apps that do things like predict when your next demand charge you know, will be incurred based on all of the operating characteristics of the building and the kind of supply environment that you're in to, you know, things like making sure that you're constantly within range on pH for Legionnaire's compliance, you know, in your water systems. And again, there's a broad range of, of outcomes that we're ultimately trying to drive. But the idea there is we're data centric. We're an overlay system that, again, sits on top of the existing operational equipment, We don't compete with Schneider. We don't compete with Siemens. We don't compete with Honeywell. We leverage the data that those systems create, augment it with IoT sensor data, with service bureau data, everything from real-time utility pricing information to the kind of data you get out of systems like watt time and singularity around carbon coefficients, as an example, all to create the baseline for applications that help building operators run buildings more effectively, more efficiently, and, and more responsibly. Cool. And we're probably, I have so many questions on Nantum that we're probably going to run out of time, but Tegan, 
Can you put this in context with, do you, are your clients accepting the need for a building OS? Can you think about like all the other types of software that we talked about earlier? Like how prevalent is this building OS concept? And this strikes me as it has such room to grow at this point. You know, how many buildings have an operating system like Sonu just described? It does. And not enough of them is the short answer. Um, I think this concept of sort of bringing the bottoms up and some of the like this very kind of building focused technology into the broader ESG and climate agenda Mm -hmm. as a, you know, for a company is sort of what I spend my days doing, right? I think it's been a lot of focus on what we're reporting and what we're not reporting. And what I think by and large, a lot of companies have struggled with is tying that to, you know, overall climate strategy to the actual operationalization of that yeah, strategy, absolutely. which is where you start looking at things like Nantum and other technologies to help you meet that goal. But I yeah. think a lot of companies still struggle to sort of get all of those things in alignment. And now, especially again, not to harp too much on the SEC guidance, but you know, that proposal is sort of kicking off, again, a whole, what are we reporting? What are we not reporting? And what's sort of getting lost in there is like, well, why aren't you reporting those things? Because you don't have the data to tell you the things that you need to report on. So I think we'll get there, but I think it'll probably take a little bit of time. In the meantime, I think what's great about you know, some of this stuff is it sort of outside of the climate agenda, you know, there's ROI, there's an ROI story in and of itself. It's just a matter of tying that all together. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, Sonu, maybe a little bit more on Nantum specifically. So I was checking out the products and I haven't dug into it in a couple of years. So you guys are doing a lot in terms of capabilities at this point. And I was really struck by like how many types of things can be done. Whereas if we think about the history of smart buildings, you have a lot of startups that focus on one of these things, right? You know, we have a history of kind of solving one of the problems and then leaving the other problems for someone else. And you, you guys have seemed to take this, like, we're going to do energy, we're going to do MNV, we're going to do analytics, we're going to do indoor air quality, we're going to do supervisory control, we're going to do grid interaction. Uh, there's a little bit of tenant engagement, it seems like as well. So can you talk about like why that comprehensive, why you took that sort of comprehensive approach? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two ways to look at it. The first one is, you know, if you bought a computer that only let you play solitaire, you'd probably be pretty irritated. (laughs) Um, You know, or if you bought a, you know, mobile phone and all you can do is look at Instagram, eventually be like, man, I could use some email, maybe I could use some news. And so the same sort of notion applies, which is to say that there is a threshold that needs to be achieved of efficacy across a broad number of workflows. Otherwise, you're not actually turbocharging the building operator like you think you are. Mm, yep. Right? So there's a, there's a threshold that needs to be achieved. And, and that's really the story around the operating system should be made up of primitives that are flexible and that can be reconfigured in order to deliver different types of outcomes. And we, you know, if you don't have that level of modularity, that level of flexibility, the likelihood that you're going to be relevant to the widest possible audience is low. And so the, the paradigm that we use in building prescriptive data or building Nantum is that while you know, people that care deeply about a particular business outcome might think of us just as a, you know, through the lens of that particular business outcome, ultimately, this is about middleware. It's about data science and artificial intelligence as a service. It's about integration as a service. It's about flexible user interface as a service. It's about integration with third-party best-of-breed providers that can bring something, you know, that we can't bring to the table. And essentially it's a Lego kit. And so what goes hand in hand with that is that means that we have the right AI and ML level driven solution for the right building in the right asset class at the right time. And crucially at the right price point, such that people can, can begin their journey into the smart buildings world. You know, if, if that's what we're talking about. And by the same token, they can begin their journey in a really meaningful and effective place when it comes to decarbonization. Got it. And and you guys, you were telling me before we hit record about this new partnership. Can you talk a little bit more about that around, I think it's JP, JP Morgan Chase that you guys... Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So this particular engagement with JPMC is particularly exciting in that we're embedded within the JPMC you know, decarbonized by 2030 plan. And that involves a couple of different 
concepts and components that we've already talked about. It is about finding renewable supply in quantities that will satiate the needs of the firm on a global basis. But it's also just as importantly about energy demand management. And so we've been asked to put to work all of our energy uh, conservation measure algos in Nantum across all of JP Morgan's commercial owned properties, commercial leased properties, specialty real estate, things like warehouses and call centers, as well as their data centers, initially in North America, but ultimately in the Europe operating theater, as well as the Asia PAC operating theater. Basically a uh, scope that goes from, you know, 1.2 million square feet to 26 million square feet of space to a massive amount of space thereafter when you start to consider JP Morgan Chase's managed real estate assets for investment purposes. And the goal there is to bring together three key technologies. The first and foremost is all the stuff we've been talking about in terms of an IoT platform um, and sensor capabilities in combination with artificial intelligence and machine learning combined with fancy talk from blockchain here, digital ledger technology, to uh, enable JP Morgan Chase to be not only best in class on both sides of this coin, the supply side, as well as the energy demand reduction side, but also to be, and I give them tremendous credit for this, to be a beacon for what's possible, to sort of use their own real estate, use their own dollars to show a path, a playbook, to create a playbook, if you will, for decarbonization that their peers can follow and that their customers can follow. And, and the way I'm understanding this is like the, the, the platform, Nantum as a platform does all of these things. It sounds like they're buying, we want to buy decarbonization, right? And, and how does it work when you guys have clients like that? Do they then lead into the, all the other things as well? Yeah, exactly right. So back okay. to that ROI waterfall that we were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, energy demand management equals energy cost reduction equals carbon footprint shrinkage equals fine avoidance and all that money, plus all the other things that we talked about, then become the engine for which, by which other smart building um, value props can be purchased and, and ultimately justified for and so what we typically see is folks do start with energy because that's where the, 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 you know, the funding for all these initial uh, subsequent initiatives come from. And then they are buying you know, dedicated modules around indoor air quality. They're buying dedicated modules around space utilization, which is going one step further than just understanding whole building occupancy. They want to see individual tenant usage a- analytics. The water stuff we talked about before is particularly compelling. And the list goes on and on. Got it. Okay. Two more questions that we've got to wrap this thing up on, on Nantum. So when I look at you guys as the product itself, it seems like what I would call the back of the house, you guys have a lot covered there as far as that's what a building operating system does. Right. When I think about the front of the house, like if we think about like Rudin running their real estate business, for example, keeping tenants happy, leasing spaces, all, all the business side of things. Yep. Can you talk about how Nantum might integrate with those types of software systems and yeah. h- how that might happen? Yeah, well, there's two things to, to, to tell you about there. The first one is, first of all, I love the back of the house. Me too. Me too. Yeah, I me love too. the back of the house. I think it's important to recognize why the back of the house exists. So in a commercial office building, we're talking about delivering an experience that's comfortable, that's safe through all of the incredible hard work of the folks that are in the back of the house. And so from that point of view, you know, we don't exist for the sake of technology. We, f- we exist for the sake of saving money while also optimizing for the tenant's experience in buildings. So I think maybe that's not necessarily exactly what you're asking for, but I think that's an important theme in terms of the connection totally. between back of the house and the front of the house. And of course, that, that storyline can be different across other asset classes. But as it relates to integrations with front office, let's call it that, you know, software applications in the real estate world, I can think of two that are particularly compelling. The first one is this idea that having leased commercial office, my you know, space myself here in New York, one of the things that's always so maddening, uh, aside from how ridiculously long the contracts are, is that there's no way to know. You get all this detail about square footage, how many desks can you fit in there, the list goes on and on, but you don't have any understanding as to what the operating cost of this real estate is. And so this idea of creating a system of record around back office operations in the real estate world can dramatically influence the selection of sustainable property 
in the mm. front of the house. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is, the, you know, the example I shared with you earlier, which is this idea that local law 97 is penalizing buildings in New York City, so owners and operators and occupiers, for whole building energy consumption, even though more than 50% on average is generated by the tenants. And so how do you address that? So you'll have some particularly switched on tenants that have the funding and have the sort of vision to be equally sustainability oriented, but it ultimately does come down to the individual humans, the employees of those tenants and their behaviors and how they engage and use the space. And so, uh, you know, to come back to your original question, whether we you know, provide the tenant experience app, and of course we've got one, or you are an HQO, you know, customer, or you're a lane customer, or you built your homegrown one or a VTS rise, our argument should be that we should be able to provide you with real-time actionable information as an employee from the back of the house into the front of the house through your phone, all safe and secure, that helps you understand what your daily real-time carbon footprint is as a human. And if Love we're that. able to then, you know, optimize individual behavior, then we are well on our way to turning back the clock on climate change. Love that vision. Okay, one last question, firing at you as we as we get down to the end. So you guys have this capability called Chief Engineer, I think it is on your website. It's something I always like to bring up with people that are thinking about this problem, like you are, Sonu. What do you say to chief engineers that might feel like the software is taking their job from them? First things first, I've never encountered somebody that I thought either based on intuition or because they said it to my face that we were in the business of replacing them. Quite the opposite. We think, and again, this goes back to, we're proud of the fact that we're a system that was built by building operators for other building operators. And so this is not about, you know, jobs elimination. The reality of it is, They've got this massive, difficult, multi-dimensional job. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do is empower them to do it in the single most efficient way they possibly can do it. And so I think that's a, just a, it's a mindset thing. If anything, we definitely encounter folks that um, you are simply don't, haven't had the time to sort of marinate and learn the system. Um, But what we find is that, and we do this as part of every one of our customer success implementations, we spend a lot of time helping them understand the concepts behind Nantum, the outcomes that can be driven. And ultimately, this only works if they embrace the technology and they put it to work in their daily workflows. Right. Yeah. I love it. I've just, I've just seen so many operators that are like, they feel such ownership over doing things like saying what time the building's going to start up tomorrow, like things like that, that you guys is, you guys are quite rightly, in my opinion, automating some of that. And I I do think it's a mindset shift and it, it, it doesn't, maybe they can repurpose those things and do other things with their time because they're so busy anyway. So it's, it's the good fight. All right, let's finish this off. This is one of those episodes where I feel like I'm going to need to listen to it again because I feel like there was so much good stuff. So thank you both. Let's end with some carve outs. So what book, movie, TV show, podcast, or other sort of thing in your personal life or work life would you like to share with the audience and recommend that they check out? Let's start with you, Tegan. So I will never not recommend The Expanse. It's probably my all-time favorite show um, for those who like sci-fi or just good shows in general. It's great. It's all done now, so it's very bingeable. And it's also a series of books that I haven't read, but I understand the TV show is an excellent adaptation of the books. Awesome. I've never even heard of it, so I'm very excited. (laughs) So I'm going to extend a little bit because it's got kind of a funny story. Please do. um, it started on the sci-fi network, was canceled, and then supposedly was Jeff Bezos's favorite show. So as all billionaires that have the, this at their disposal do, he bought it. And so oh, the, okay. third, the seasons four, five, and six are on Prime. Got it. And, and what uh, streaming platform is it on? It's on Prime, Amazon Prime. Oh, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Sonia, how about you? Well, um, I'm sort of on a mission at Prescriptive Data to sort of bring back an old favorite, oldie but goodie, a book called Crossing the Chasm. 
Okay. Which, which I bring up mainly because, of course, I'm surrounded by millennials that didn't grow up with the book, but I certainly did. And I think it's super relevant to what's happening in the real estate meets technology sphere, which is we've got lots of early adopters. Kudos to them. We wouldn't be in business without them. Mm-hmm. And we are now finding ourselves spending all of our time on those folks that are on the other side of the chasm, folks like JP Morgan Chase, who are embracing the new, new thing in a really rapid fashion. And I would argue that, you know, your podcast, Nexus Labs is part of actually crossing the chasm, right? You're popularizing, you're sharing information, you're creating a forum for discussion. And so I'd say crossing the chasm, as much as it's kind of a boring looking book, I think it's particularly exciting and relevant to what we're talking about. Um, but as it relates to, to TV, I have to admit something that might be ridiculous, but I have embraced Ted Lasso as religion. <laughs> nice. I Meaning love that. Everybody at Prescriptive Data on the executive team has to have watched it. I actually okay. bought their Apple TV Plus subscriptions Nice. To ensure that there were no excuses. And then at least during the first season and partway into the second season, they had to take a test every <laughs> single Monday morning about what they learned from Ted Lasso. That's amazing. And how they would apply it to their job. And then at the end of that session, I asked them if they believe. All right. I love it. And so I have to ask you then what you thought of the second half of the last season. Oh, I was so um, upset with Nate. I don't want to yeah. you know, spoil this for anybody that hasn't seen it. And that's largely because Nate is a you know pudgy, short Indian guy, just like me. So I'm slightly <laughs> uh, irritated with his behavior. But that was the most disappointing part of, of season two. Well, what's so beautiful about it is there's a little Nate in all of us, right? And it's just a lesson about life, like packaged into Nate. And so you hate him, but you also hate that part of you, yeah, which right. is fascinating. <laughs> um, okay. So mine, I'm just going to reshare what you just said, which is, I think everyone in our industry should walk or should read Crossing the Chasm. Very, very, I was trying to point to it behind me, but I think I moved it to the bookshelf that's behind the camera, but everyone should read that. I also wrote an essay that I'll put in the show notes that's called How Analytics Software Can Go Mainstream and it used the entire framework that's built you know, it used the crossing the chasm framework and kind of applied it to analytics software and energy management software. So I'll put that in the show notes for people. And it's basically like we, we need to do better at creating a, what he calls, uh, Jeffrey Moore calls a whole product. It needs to solve the whole problem, not just say, here's, you know, here's this analytical insight that we hope you do something good with, but you're probably not going to because you have 20 million other things to do. So that was one of my favorite pieces of writing that I've ever done. And I, I just think everyone should, should read that book. So anyway, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. This has been super fun. Thanks for hosting. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart buildings industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.